Yeah, well, thanks for having me on, guys. I'm 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 glad to meet you. Yeah, you as well, man. You as well. Seen you. Uh, <clears throat> I've watched uh, my brother and sister-in-law live up in Rhinelander, and I, every time I go up there, we always pop in hunting videos and stuff. And they originally had a bunch of that uh, the white tail or Wisconsin white tail pursuit. And I've always been a so I saw you there, and then um, I've always been a huge white tail adrenaline fan. And mm-hmm. you know, you're on there for a couple years, and that that kill you had with the canoe was pretty <laughs> pretty badass. So. Yeah, um, just like one that got away right before I shot that one. That's, that's yeah. the one that kills me. <laughs> Jared yeah. just sent me last year. He sent me over all the raw footage from that. I mean, that's that's back a ways. I mean, that's 2015, right? And that's eight years yeah. ago. Um, and getting that footage and finally and looking at looking at it back and slowing it down frame by frame, and just watching that big buck rubbing on that cedar tree just come in and out of focus. And I mean, it's 17 points. Yeah. he had big big thick wide brow tines that were both split heavy with a kicker coming off the the base of one of them and split two split threes um inside point on both sides he's just a gnarly gnarly buck he was cool uh, i shot right under his armpit man um, while, while while he was while he was rubbing on that cedar tree just rubbing away it would have been epic and well, I hate that word. Here I am using it, but it would have been, <laughs> you know. And then, and then he bounded off, and that feeling of missing a deer uh, on film, you know, especially whitetail adrenaline. When you, you know, the thing about Jared and, and his production is he don't really care, you know, what happens. He just he's gonna use it. You know, he says yeah. as real as real as we could film it, and he means that. And uh, you know, for me to get bent out of shape, it, it was really hard to stomach that knowing how many people are going to watch me miss you right. know and I, I didn't know i was going to get another chance so I, I just was bumming um i got real negative and he was like yeah well we got about 30 minutes before shooting time what do you want to do and i was like i don't know man it's been raining on and off all day the river's probably gorged and uh hopefully the canoe's still there i'm cold you're cold we're both tired I say we hit it and get back to the canoe. We're going to have a long paddle ahead of us in the dark. And he's like, well, I kind of want to check out this one more finger public that sticks, that goes around this corner. And I was like, you know, just not in the mood, but all right. Yeah. I didn't think, you know, we just missed a deer. I'm like, there's no way we're going to be on the ground walking around and we're just suddenly going to have another chance. Yeah. But he, he, he was persistent. We walked, I was ahead of him and, we hooked left and went up that ridge and we got up on a bench and uh as soon as we got on that bench and started walking i think we got about 30 yards and he grabbed me by the back of my coat and gave me a little tug and he said big buck and uh we both froze and yeah that was something else uh, that 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 shot was 55 yards through the timber on the ground wow. and he he tried calling me up because the deer was at 25 or 30 when he was first in range but i couldn't get a clear shot at him and uh i drew back and i was holding my draw for a long time and um he was filming the whole time and he he finally turned the camera on me and he goes let down let down let down let down i remember him saying it four or five times and i was not having it i found a window size of a basketball hoop and i let her fly and <laughs> he somehow was able to turn that camera dial in his focus and zoom which if you ever use manual focus and manual zoom 
that's using two dials on the lens at the same time. So they're opposite directions. So you need to train your hands to have one finger turning the dial to focus while the other one's zooming in. That is a tremendous skill, and it takes years, years, and years of experience before you could do something like that. And he he nailed it. Uh, I'll never forget that. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we we used cameras like that in our first year because we just didn't have anything better, and that's what we had. And you're spot on there about having to go opposite ways with your hands, and especially if you're self filming, it's really, really difficult. There's a reason why we switched yeah. from those really quickly. Yeah, I mean, right now I'm using. Uh, I prefer if I'm if I'm in the tree and I'm filming somebody, um, I'll film in manual. I would say, you know, seventy five percent of the time. I think that's realistic uh, because I'm able to dial in my focus. I use my zoom focus to get in tight wherever I want. You know, spot focus is pretty sweet. I mean, um, you set up a little manual command on your uh, DSLR and. You can, it makes a little window on my Sony. I, I run the Sony Alphas, so I, I run a Sony A, A7 uh, IV. Um, I've been through a two and now on a four. Uh, some of the guys on my team run threes. One guy still runs a two and a few of us run fours now. But um, man, it's just something about the way you can kind of bokeh and make that creamy background and just really dial in your focus to, to an animal when he's walking through the trees. I just, I really enjoy seeing how that looks, the cinematic effect from it. But it's awfully hard, especially when you're competing with low light, like we often have when we're out, you know, filming in, in the mornings and the evenings. So for me, being a Sony person, especially with the Alpha series, the new, like the A3s and the A4s, their autofocus just picks up so dang fast compared to the A7S2s. Um, and, and it's just, it's such a tremendous tool, man, when you're in auto. Uh, I never trusted auto, so I got really used to it, you know, using manual. Uh, but nowadays, yeah, I'd say at least 25% of the time I'm running auto, autofocus. So, yeah, for but sure. yeah, I, I, I know how challenging it is, but, but you know how it is. You just, you do something for so long, you just sort of, you get finely tuned at your craft. And uh, once you're really good at it, there's a difference that you see, you know, because because automatic focus will just grab on, latch on to whatever it thinks it should. You know, sometimes you set it up for like eyes and it'll catch a pair of eyes and then it'll stay focused. Like if you got a deer walking through the woods and you're in autofocus, but you got it, you know, you've got it in a setting where it captures eyes. It'll follow that deer, you know, from when he's 50 yards out to 20 yards, even when he's walking through the trees and it won't necessarily trip on you and, and start focusing on branches or something. Whereas, like, if you're just in a basic autofocus mode, um, you're not always exactly sure what it wants to focus on, but it's usually something in the foreground, you know? Right. And, and, and it's not necessarily what you want. And people think that looks cool, uh, but some people overuse, like, you know, from clip to clip to clip to clip, and it goes from, like, blurry to, to real fine, blurry to real fine. Like, I, I like the allure of that, but not when it's overused. Right, right. Oh, sorry, sorry I, I go off on tangents when it comes to this stuff, man. That's what I do. So. <laughs> no, I, <laughs> I just I get, I get lost in it. Yeah, I tell you what, man, that's that's a lot of good information already. I, I think we're going to have to keep that in there, but I do want to give you a good formal introduction for everybody. Um, so, yeah, tonight we have a, a really awesome guest for you guys. 
um, Sam Ubel from Chase Nation. So Sam has been in the outdoor industry and in the whitetail scene for a number of years, um, getting a start writing for various hunting and fishing magazines and other outdoor outlets. Um, and then jumping into the video and filming scene, Sam's been featured on both the Wisconsin Whitetail Pursuit and Whitetail Adrenaline DVD series. And that was all before he ended up co-founding Chase Nation back in 2016. So Sam, welcome to the Buck Fever Podcast. Yeah, thanks guys. I, I appreciate you having me on. I really do. Yeah, it's, we're... Uh, it's always nice to, to meet new people and to, to talk whitetail hunting. I never get sick of it. No, us either. And we're super excited to have you on as well. And I want to start by, by first saying, you know, we're just a few weeks away from the opener here in Wisconsin. And we're looking forward to talking some early season whitetail tactics with you. But um, just kind of want to get to know you a little bit better first. So can you give us some more background on who you are, where you're from, what you do for a living, and kind of what your path has been through the outdoor industry to lead you where you are today? Yeah, yeah, you bet. Um, so uh, I'm, I'm from the southeast part of the state of Wisconsin, um, born and raised here. Um, I got my start in the industry, actually really started more so with, uh, you know, I've been caught up between hunting and fishing since I, I, I could get my feet under me, but uh, I really kind of broke into the scene with musky fishing, and that's really where um, I started to open up doors to meet the right people to kind of get me involved and, and, and uh, to um, give me the opportunities that it took to get my work seen. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. I was fishing tournaments since 2007, uh, the professional muskie tournament trail, PMTT. Um, and uh, I, I've been doing that up until a couple of years ago. We had a really great winning streak and I felt like I kind of, I, I, I reached all the goals that I wanted to do with competitive muskie fishing and the time that it took away from my family and, and you know, just invested in all the PTO uh, that I was given away to go pre-fish for tournaments, um, took away from my hunting time. So I gave it up after uh, we had that real winning year. Um, but in doing so, you know, that kind of goes hand in hand with my passion for, um, musky fishing. And, and I've always been the type that, you know, when I see something or experience something outdoors, you know, this kind of stuff that not everybody gets involved in or not everybody gets a chance to see. I always feel a tinge of uh, selfishness. You know, it's kind of like when, you, when you're driving by yourself heading west and you got the most perfect sunset and, you know, you, you, you take a you know, picture with your phone and text it to your girl back home and say, I wish you could see this in person. It's one of those things for me. You know, it's like with, with videography and photography, I, I have to have a camera nearby because I'm so caught up in sharing the experience. And that same thing goes hand in hand with my writing. Um, early on, I became an outdoor writer for Muskie Hunter magazine and a variety of different online media publications and print magazine. And in doing so, that's how I met Jared Scheffler. I wrote an article um, for, what was that one, for Whitetail First. Uh, it was for Outdoor First Media. Um, and Jared, the, the article was about uh, getting aggressive, uh, get in the ground and get aggressive. Um and I talked about his warrior style techniques um, of, you know, uh, being on foot and, and just the whole, uh, the whole method of hunting. It's just a, it's a different animal 
it's something that I grew up with because we didn't have the money. My family and I, my, my dad, my mom to buy tree stands. So we hunted on the ground all the time. So I understood it quite a bit and I wrote about it. When Jared read it, uh, he, he really appreciated the call out. So he, he sent me, uh, um, an email and he asked for my address. And a couple weeks later, I got this package with a DVD set and a personalized uh, letter written on a postcard in there with his phone number on the back. He said, give me a call sometime. I'd uh, love to chat and talk whitetails with you. And uh, so we got to talking and we became really close. And that, uh, that following year, I ended up shooting a uh, piebald buck with my bow, um, which you probably saw in that uh, white, Wisconsin Whitetail Pursuit um, DVD. Mm -hmm. And uh, he called me up. That was early October, like October 2nd or something. And he called me up and he goes, hey, now that you just killed one in Wisconsin, how do you feel about getting on the road and hunting Minnesota? And I was like, well, I don't know. I never thought about it. He goes, well, I'd, I'd love to have you come up and stay with me. We'll go film together over there. And I said, well, you don't have to twist my arm. <laughs> um, and so I cruised out there and we started, you know, filming what you saw with that canoe buck out of Minnesota. And then, uh, you know, it kind of spiraled from that point on. I was writing for um, different uh, hunting magazines at that point. I was uh, managing editor of Outdoor First Media. I was writing for Legendary Whitetails. Um, I was just really building a name for myself and, and it got to a point though, where, you know, I was, I was filming with Wisconsin whitetail pursuit at the time. I was also filming with whitetail adrenaline. And then I was starting chase nation and kind of just stretched too thin, I guess. And, and when you're on a hunting show and you own a hunting show, and then you, you're also on somebody else's hunting show and nobody knows where to find your material and they, you know, kind of gets all mixed up. So uh, I kind of stopped filming with everybody else and just really focused heavy on, on Chase Nation. And then that's uh, been my, my thing ever since. So that's, that's really about me. I'm 40 years old. I love to bow hunt whitetails, and, and uh, I love to musky fish. Nice, nice. I've always been a huge fan of whitetail adrenaline and, and enjoyed your couple years there. Um, so it sounds like you had that background kind of built in you already, that, that aggressive approach from the ground. Did you? Any other takeaways from hunting with those guys for a couple of years and, and little mm -hmm. things you maybe picked up from them? Yeah, you know, um, my tactics were quite a bit different than, than Jared's. You know, um, I, hunting in that part of the state of Wisconsin, western part of Wisconsin, and the southeastern part of Minnesota, it's bluffy terrain. It's, it's real hill country. And, um, you know, back home here, uh, hunting on the ground for me wasn't like walking into a piece and then hoping you, hunt, you you know you jump one up and he stands there long enough to give you a shot or something or you know really uh, he, and you, there's not much spot and stock in, in my part of the state down here in like Waukesha County Washington County it's flat it's it's all farm country and um, it, it really means walking into a piece finding fresh science you know find a little spot to sit up against a tree or in a bush or something, breaking some branches to shoot through and, and, and waiting for something to come through. And that, that's really been what I was used to with, with ground hunting. Um, with hunting with Jared, <clears throat> you know, out there in those hills, one of the most uh, important things that I learned, um, there was a couple of real good lessons I took away, but using my glass, you know, using your binoculars was so pinnacle. Um, also thermals, you know, where you're walking. I mean, when you're in hill country, you know, are you going to stay low or are you going to go high? 
um, you know, and, and visibility, like where are you getting picked out? You really focused on that kind of thing. We also talked a lot about like emotional attachment to the deer. You know, it's, it's, it's inevitable. If you're hunting on the ground and you're walking constantly, you know, you're, you're slow footing around, you're going to bump deer. And once in a while you get a glimpse of a deer that you just wish you hadn't bumped because once he's gone, he's gone. And when you're hunting with, with those guys, you're not going back in there. You might, but you probably aren't. There's gotta be a good reason to bring you back to the same piece. So you got to let go of any kind of emotional attachment of those deer, even the big ones. There's no like getting stuck on one being like, man, he was huge. Okay. We got to spend the rest of the week chasing this one deer. It's like, all right, well, we're in the, we're in the thick of it now. We, we know what they're doing. We know where they're kind of staying at what times of the day or how they're, how they're, how they're, they're moving or whatever. And, and we apply the, what we learned to the next piece. And then the third most uh, important lesson that I learned was, learning how to abandon ship man i mean when you walk into a piece just because it looks good from outer space you know when you're looking on your aerials your topos you walk in and it doesn't look good you you, you gotta let go of what you ter- you told yourself going into it like man this piece looks so good i can't wait to go walk in there man i don't even know how many pieces we worked really hard to get into and we only lasted 20, 30 minutes, and then we're like, this is just not, something just doesn't feel right. There's not enough fresh sign or whatever the case may be. We turn around and, and, and blow out of there. You know, th- those are some primo lessons that I really took away from that. Mm-hmm. I think those are two major lessons. Like, there's so many guys that, myself included, I'm mean, sure we, we've all have been there where we get emotionally attached to a certain or specific buck. Uh, and that can't be easy to let that go. Um, and, and likewise, like, you know, you work it to get into a spot and you just, you know, you think about the effort it took him to get there and you'd probably just, you know, anchor down all day versus having that mindset of, nope, the sign's not here. It's not what I thought it was. And we're out and on to the next place. That's, that takes some discipline and a certain uh, mindset for sure. Also kind of, um, you know, an important thing to, to, to consider is, and you know, and this is something that I, I, I've been wanting to write about. I, I did write about it once or once upon a time, but I think it's a topic that should be talked about a little bit more. Um, I've been using trail cameras now uh, for many years, many years. Um, uh, the way I used to use them versus how I use them now has changed significantly. Uh, I don't, um, I don't leave my cameras out all season long. I leave them out for the summer. Once the season pull wraps around, I typically I'll pull those cameras when I'm out hunting on the way back. I'll pull them. I've got my inventory. I kind of know who's around. And then I'll redeploy late October when they're starting to hit the scrapes a little bit heavier just to see who's, who's making it to my neck of the woods that doesn't normally frequent the area just because of the rut kicking in. Uh, for me, you know, that makes sense, right? Um, but all the things considered one thing that I've learned and, and, and again, I'm 40 years old and, and, and I've been at this game since I was, you know, 10 years old with my dad following him around. But one thing I've really learned is that once you get pictures of deer, you really train your brain on private ground or public to hold off and wait for a specific animal that, you know, meets your standards that you've, you've established for yourself based on what you're seeing from the trail camera Intel we've lost a lot of what that initial allure was back when I was young, you know, between the ages of like when I was hunting with a bow in my hand at 12 till I was about maybe 
24, 25, when I started really using trail cameras, I really loved that surprise. You don't know what deer is coming around the corner. You, you, you make up your mind if you're going to shoot them right then and there. And it's, it's so far gone now. Some of the deer that I let walk by me nowadays, I, I don't think I would have let walk, you know, 15 years ago. I, 15 years ago, I've been thrilled and been like, shoot, I don't know if I'll see another one. I don't know if there's any deer bigger, but that one got my heart going. Yeah. And now that heartbeat is kind of skipping, you know, a little bit because I'm, I'm like, yeah, he's all right. It's kind of like as a musky fisherman, you catch a northern on accident and he's like a 35 incher. Anybody <laughs> should be excited to catch a 35 inch northern, but a musky fisherman's frustrated, you know, yeah. dang, I thought that was a musky. And now I'm not excited anymore. And you shake him off the hook and you let him go without a picture. And it's like, well, what happened? You know? Um, so I don't know. That's just one of those topics that comes to mind. I know exactly how you're feeling with that. Um, and it's a strange feeling to describe. I don't even know how to, to, to really get a hold on it, but I do know what you mean. Where like, you know, at those ages you had such an excitement. You didn't know what was the next buck to stick his head around the corner. And now you, the way we're deploying cameras, you basically know every buck on the property. Like nothing is a surprise of who it is when they're coming. Mm -hmm. um, and it does take a little bit of the, the allure off of it. Um, right. Some of that excitement know. factor, man. I don't know. It's just yeah. like, I could have a, you know, a three-year-old eight pointer walk in that maybe goes, you know, one fifteen, but yeah, that morning, you know, I could hear him coming. The leaves were crackling. There was like, a little bit of fog that was just lifting and uh it just seemed right i could hear you know antlers crashing in the distance and everything was perfect for like the pinnacle rut morning and then this eight pointer walks in and i'm just like wow what a perfect encounter yeah hell yeah i'm shooting this deer nowadays that deer walks in and i'm like go on your way i'm waiting for yeah. a bigger one you know what i mean and then and then you end up eating take soup or or you know, I don't know, getting down on yourself and, and there's stress involved now and you're getting frustrated with your neighbors or, or, or whatever. It's just a, it's just, everything has changed, especially with social media nowadays. It's like some, some of these guys that are out hunting, I'm sorry, but it's just the reality is a lot of guys aren't hunting for the same reasons that we used to hunt. That's no just one of those, that's just a you know, harsh reality, you know? I mean, we're, we're, it's it, it's it, it reminds me of like some of the bass fishermen that hate muskies, but they always have a picture of one that they caught on their phone and they love showing it off. <laughs> you, know, you hate the fish. You, you, you make jokes about cutting their bellies and letting them go because they eat the bass, but you caught one and it made you so proud that you keep that photo handy to show people when you're out. You know, it's, sure. it's, it's like that with social media, man. It's like, what are we hunting for? We're, we're horn hunting here. Or are we, you know, are we hunting for antlers? Are we hunting for the experience? Are we hunting for the meat? What, what is, where does everybody stand? And, and to be honest with you, it's no matter to anybody, but the person hunting, right? It's not my decision. It's, it's yours. Why you hunt. But I do sense a difference in our culture as a hunting community. It's, it's really, it's really, it's really obvious lately. Yeah, I have to, I have to agree with you. And we've had this conversation amongst our little group uh, many times. And I think I've said, that's why I enjoy like some of my public land out of state hunts so much. It's because, and I've said it a bunch of times, there's no expectation. I don't know what's out there. Uh, I'm going to shoot whatever gets my heart racing. And I, it like takes me back to my youth and I love that feeling versus like 
the private land I'm hunting in Wisconsin. We've got cameras deployed. We know basically every buck that's on the property. And yeah, don't get me wrong. When the a target one comes in, you'll still get super jacked up and excited, but there's nothing that beats that raw emotion of just not knowing what to expect. Um, and then having that buck come in. And I think that's why I've started to really enjoy some of the out of state stuff so much. Um, I love just what a, you just said, I, I, I absolutely adore, adore the words coming out of your mouth because they make a hundred percent sense. Yeah. You know, you and your buddy go out to, uh, to Wyoming or, or Nebraska or something on a muzzleloader hunt, uh, you know, early December and you see a bunch of big old deer out in these fields, but you can't get permission to go out there because, you know, damn near every farmer out there is leasing his land out to, to, uh, you know, outfitters and or he expects a you know a trespass fee to go out on his field for a chance to kill one and he pay this much if you get them and this much if you don't but either way you're paying a trespass fee and and not everybody's got that kind of cash floating in their pocket and they 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 uh come down to the last day or two and you know uh, a, a little seven pointer walks out and they shoot it and they get to have that experience of well at least we're not going home empty-handed and mm-hmm. and and the last thing they're thinking of on that drive home is uh, everybody's going to make fun of us and whatnot. No, I mean, it, it's just, you got so much pride into that, that you drove all the way out there. You did that adventure and yeah, man, it, that's to me, that's what hunting used to be. And I kind of missed yeah. that. So. Yeah. Yeah, for sure, dude. Um, so speaking of like some of these conversations about, you know, those feelings when you were younger, how did you ever, how'd you get into hunting? Did you come from a hunting family um, who are some of your, what are some of those fond early memories in the early days? Yeah. You know, uh, my dad would always be, my dad was a trapper. He was a farrier and a trapper and rode in the rodeo. Um, he, <laughs> he left home when he was real young and he kind of had to find his way and his money came from shoeing horses, you know, making horseshoes and, um, trapping, you know, fur tra- in the fur trade. It, there was a time when, when he was, he's in his late sixties now, but back when he was in his teen and early twenties, you know, certain parks around, uh, the areas that I'm from here, um, used to be, you could go out and hunt, you know, my, uh, my ex-father-in-law talks about the cemetery where you used to be able to pheasant hunt. And it's like in a, in a bad neighborhood in Milwaukee now, it's so weird how things have changed. Right. But my dad, he's just got it ingrained in him. And, uh, when when I got to spend my weekends with my dad, it was every other weekend I got to spend with him. And and you better believe all we did was hunt and fish and camp. I mean, that's what we did. We were jump shooting ducks on the rivers. We were, you know, ice fishing on the bayous of the Fox River down in like, uh, you know, near Princeton, Montello area, southeast part of the state, more south, yeah. south central, I guess. Um, we were. Uh, we were hunting squirrels and rabbits and pheasants. We were in Wood County in the seed area, the center part of the state of Wisconsin, looking for grouse, you know, looking at, you know, uh, footprints from wolves. And uh, we had bells on our dogs listening just in case they, you know, found trouble with wolves or something. I just, I'll, I'll never forget those things growing up. And, um, you know, I told my dad when I was younger, you know, we'll always be best friends. We'll always be hunting buddies. And then he would tell me, uh, uh, you'll get older and you'll want to hunt with your friends. You'll get your driver's license and um, pretty soon we won't be hunting together anymore. And I thought, why would you say something like that, Dad? You know, it's never going to happen. Well, he was right. 
uh, I got older and met, met, met other kids that like to hunt the way I did. And, you know, back then having a gun in your trunk at a school, uh, in high school wasn't weird. You know, where I grew up in Waukesha area, you know, we would go duck hunting in the morning before school and we'd throw the ducks in a cooler and, you know, put our guns in the cases, put our waiters in the, in the trunk and <laughs> change clothes and, in the parking lot at school, go do our classes. And then we'd get done, uh, or at lunchtime for junior and senior year, we could leave. We'd go over to my house and clean ducks and throw them in the freezer and then go back to school. And then after school, we'd go back to the marsh, you know, that's kind of how I cut my teeth. Um, and we didn't have a lot of money. And back then, uh, you know, I would say venison or, or any kind of wild game for that matter is really some of the most expensive meat you can eat these days when it comes to all the equipment that we have to purchase, land leases, licensing fees, the gas we're using to drive there, you name it. Right. But back then, a lot of those things didn't matter. You know, we didn't have all the gadgets back then. We didn't have the cameras, didn't have to drive so far to get away from the masses to get to public land that wasn't overcrowded. More guys are hunting now, and so you gotta, you got to drive further to escape the crowds, you know, um, want private hard to get permission pieces these days that last more than a season or two you know it's like this man can you knock on a door and say can i hunt and they say yeah really what they're saying is yeah but don't kill anything or i'm going to tell somebody in my family or one of my friends and they're going to take over hunting there because we didn't know there was actually big deer back there until you came along you know you you pretty much kiss your permission goodbye so you you gotta get your leases in for private around here not always, but it just, it's just the way it is. And, um, and then as I got older, uh, you know, for, so, so a lot of that for my dad was the case, you know, he, he really, he, he wanted to meet more than anything. My dad still is a meat hunter when it comes to deer, when he shoots a big buck, he says, Oh, he's great big. And then you walk up on a two-year-old and it's like, what's that? <laughs> and he's like, well, I don't give a damn about the antlers. Look how big the body is. He said, yeah, but you should see the size of a body of a four or five year old, you know, and he goes, oh, this is great, big, great, big butterball. You know, he gets all pumped up. That's his prerogative. Yeah. You know, um, for me, I think there's definitely the whole industry standard of what's expected of a man in, in my position. You know, if I go around shooting little bucks, um, I have a thick skin and you have to have one when you put yourself in the public eye. You just do because everybody's, you're literally creating content for people to watch and, and make judgment upon. I mean, that's what you're doing. Um, and, and you're not always going to like what you hear. And the thick skin is imp- imperative. Otherwise, you'll be too down on yourself and you'll beat yourself up and you'll overthink everything. But um, if I was out there shooting like a bunch of little box or something, I, I don't know that people would necessarily pay attention to the content as much. And that's a shame, but it's also a bit of reality. Uh, and that goes hand in hand with the social media comment from earlier. And so I've kind of morphed myself a little bit where I've got this, you know, innate, uh, you know, desire to hunt the way I did when I was younger, where we got away from the tools that we use today, like the trail cameras and whatnot. And we just get back down to like the, the business side of things where, you know, we're not, caught up in somebody's you know bullshit about you know scent free sprays and soaps and spending money left and right on stuff that doesn't really matter if you play the wind right right mm-hmm. you know, i learned a long time ago my dad taught me about 
about how to play the wind and deer won't smell you if they're if they're upwind of you you know um you know the thermals drop in the evenings and and rise in the mornings you know all that coming down to barometric pressure and learning all that stuff and actually using like what what where hunting came from and we, we have to think like hunters we have to think like the animals nowadays i feel like people are buying things to try to make it easier and i just i refuse to buy into all of it but there are some things that i've bought into you know like cameras it's that internal battle i have with myself like do i really want to do this you know what i mean yeah i hear you i can't believe how many people buy into or like have the desire to make their hunt so much more easy that's mm-hmm. kind of like I don't. I just can't resonate with that. Like, why do you want to well, make like it so easy? Yeah. Have you, have you have you heard of live scope? You know, in nope. fishing boats, these guys nope. are literally, literally like on the front of their boat at the bow, looking at the graph with like rod in their hand, bait is out of the water, just waiting till they find a fish. Okay, and they go five ten minutes, and then they find one. They start casting at it. It's that is that it, was fishing really... now fishing anymore like I, I know i know what you're talking about yeah shoot man i mean you know when mm-hmm. i was growing up musky fishing especially uh, i was focusing on things like current seams and which way is the wind been blowing predominantly the last two three days what 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 is that doing with the epilimnium you know the levels the layers in the water column all that surface water that warm surface water blowing into that wind-blown shoreline i bet you the bait fish are stacked up there all that colder water is rising to the surface we got chum lines coming off of the points where you got those current seams and then say there's like a mayfly hatch and you've got a bunch of little, um, you know, pieces of mayfly that are just stacked about 10 yards wide, maybe six feet deep from the surface. And you go over them with your graph and you got the wind blowing in your face and, and you see this, 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 what you think looks like a stack of bait underneath your boat, but really it's just a chum line of larvae and like mayfly larvae and then underneath it you got these little hooks and you're like well those must be perch and then all of a sudden you see this big arc and you're like well there's a muskie feeding on the perch it's feeding on the, on the mayflies you go position your boat outside and you start casting in on a diagonal figuring these you know winds been blowing for three days the fish are always going to face into the current and that that wind driven lake current you know you, you, all these things you listen to me talk about this and that is fishing and that is the same concept that we should be using when we're hunting. Not this like, you know, hey, get this come here, deer, go pour it out and, and, and you sit and you wait. That's not that's not the way hunting really should be. It's just I mean, everybody's version of hunting is different, I guess, but that's not the hunting that I wanna be doing, you know. I hear you. I have no desire to yeah, use a product like that and then sit at home in my on my sofa and wait for my live feed camera to throw me a bucks there and then i'm gonna go hunt yeah yeah it's not that's not hunting anymore that's just basically going out there and shooting is what it is yeah i get a kick out of that when you're watching a a film you know you're watching a hunt show or something and the guy kills a big one and he goes boy we had no idea a big one like this was gonna show up today (laughs) we hadn't seen anything on the cameras they've been quiet you know we hadn't seen them any you know at all from the road and then we just on a whim thought what the heck the wind's wrong for this other spot. We might as well dive into this other piece. And then what do you know? This big old thing walks in. It's like, dude, <laughs> what in the world? You know, that's just the opposite of uh, the way I like to, 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 to hunt. You know, I like to dive in and try things and, and screw up. You learn a lot from your experiences and your mistakes. Absolutely. Absolutely. 
so a lot of good stories in there too. And uh, I want to dive into a little a story here and get to a little talk on uh, early season tactics. Um, but I want to talk about, you, you do have this feature on Chase Nation that I've really come to uh, enjoy watching um, called your campfire stories where after, you know, you guys have a harvest, you'll sit around a, a campfire or a wood stove or a deer camp and you'll like come back and retell that story. And I feel like you get more details and a lot of times you get your cameraman involved and like, what was his perspective of the, of the hunt as well? Um, super awesome job with that. I really enjoy that. So I hope you keep that up, but I want you to relive or talk to us about an opening day buck, I believe it was, back in 2020, a wide-frame seven-point. I think it oh, had a drop time. Oh, yeah, yeah. Can, we get, can we get a little bit of a campfire story retake of, of that opening day buck from a couple years ago? Yeah, that's a good one. I mean, that deer um, I had watched for three years, and I had – it was December 2nd um, of 2019, and he had – yeah, man, I wasn't seeing any deer. It was dead quiet for like three days, and I kept moving around the property, this one particular farm. And I thought, man, I'm not even seeing does. Like, what's going on? And just out of nowhere, he came um, marching in. He, I, I missed him that first shot. I hit a twig, and he bumped out to about 45. Um, and that's pretty. That's a poke. But I was shooting downhill, mm -hmm. and I was, I've been, I, I was pretty confident. Um, I sent one and that arrow hit him low shoulder. And, uh, I remember the thwack and I remember him limping off and you see that in the episode. Um, you know, and, and oh, man, I, I was sick about it cause I didn't know if he'd live or die and he never showed back up on cameras. I put cameras out there. I didn't have any running, but I went through a couple out just to see if he'd show up. He never did. So it was, in my opinion, it was, he was a goner. Fast forward to the next year, and I was sitting out there with my my ex-wife, who's my my wife at the time. We we I would always go out and pin up against the uh, buckthorn, which is just on a fence line along the road, and yeah. I would tuck in real real deep into that stuff, and I'd get my my binos out, I'd get my camera on a tripod and my uh, my spotting scope, and I would just sit there and and watch these deer feed out into the alfalfa. Every every time I get out there, you'd see these bucks in velvet. And, and it was just a fun pastime. It was great for getting B-roll and, and seeing, you know, some inventory on the deer because it was a type that you didn't really want to run cameras in the summer. Um, they'd really change their movement. And I remember her saying, look at that one. You know, I was looking at a big nine-pointer, and she goes, oh, my gosh, look at that one. He has a drop time. And I remember training the camera on him and right away recognizing his frame. And I was like, that's the one I hit. He doesn't even have a limp anymore, you know. And mm -hmm. Um, I became fixated on it. It was like, all right, I got to finish what I started because, you know, it's, it's one of those things where you, you, you wound a deer and it's hard to stomach and you got to live with it and people judge you for it. And you're like, boy, I'm not a bad hunter. And that shot just didn't hit its mark. You know, people mm -hmm. criticize you for making the decision to shoot at them that second time at that distance. And you just want your redemption. And I sure wanted mine. And so I really fixated myself on that animal. It's not common for me personally to hunt one specific deer. I've done it before and, you know, it, it, it's made things kind of hard on me and, and I got down on myself throughout the season. So it's not something I really like to do, but once in a while, I really appreciate the challenge of it. You know, it's like that, 
all right, am I a good hunter? I want to prove it to myself. I really want to kill this animal. Uh, This one especially. I already got an arrow in him once. I got to finish what I started. So I started, uh, I went in, I put one camera out there that was just for him. I mean, I got other deer on it, but I really wanted to see if he would be coming out or where he was coming out, when he was coming out. And I got him dialed into a four-day pattern. I don't know why, but this deer would, he would make this huge circle. And if he wasn't showing up on that fourth day, you could literally drive around and spot him a mile and a half away in other fields, you know, other properties, and just wonder how in the heck he's got such a big area to, to roam in the summer. In the summer, um, yeah, that's crazy in the summer. Yep. You usually don't see that. Yep, and he was he was always with the same six other bucks. This bachelor group, they were all over the place. And, and I just assumed he was going to get hit by a car. Um, but, uh, it was, I was in North Dakota, um, filming for eight days out there and opening day in Wisconsin was just around the corner. And on the fourth day before opener, he showed up uh, just like clockwork daylight, looking beautiful as ever. He had uh, stripped his velvet and, um, I called my buddy Steve back home and I said, I need you opening day. So he came out to film. Um, it was expected this would be the fourth day since the picture. I hadn't seen him since. He had to show up tonight. And uh, we went out there with rain in the forecast, and we got up in that tree. We just did a hanging hunt. Um, we were sticking out. We were in this random tree that was like it wasn't on the field edge. It was out in the field. It was a very weird tree. It's not like it's one of those trees, you know, drive by a cornfield, and you see the big oak tree out there, and it's like, oh, that's pretty in the fall. You know what I mean? Like postcard yeah. really. Yeah, it was like that, man. It was really random. Uh, but I knew the deer would walk by it. If he came out, he was going to walk by it. And we got rained on. It was cold. It was windier than heck. And if you watch that film, you see just like we were using uh, these bags over the camera gear to try to keep them dry. And it was whipping like 20-mile-per-hour wind. Uh, and then all of a sudden, the wind stopped. The rain stopped. This coyote came out with a, a live squirrel in his mouth. And... uh Steve got on the coyote, and uh, once he told me he was on him, I shot that coyote right in the throat. He died pretty pretty next to instant, and I thought I saved the squirrel, but the squirrel uh, squirrel flopped around for a minute and then died too. So that was pretty sad. I mean, not, not that I really cared all that much, but it was like, man, I'm going to save that squirrel. Yeah. <laughs> um, and that was about a 40-yard poke to kill that, that coyote. And then uh, – about oh 20 minutes before shooting light uh, we heard a dog barking from across the road and uh, we both turned around and we saw this man it looked like sheep jumping over a fence just one deer after the next jumping over the uh over this fence into our field from across the road somebody's dog must have got after them they must have been feeding somebody else's field and we had to watch him come a long ways and uh, he closed into 25 yards. I learned uh, a long time ago not to stop a walking deer that when you got a bunch of other deer right underneath you. We had seven does, nine different bucks, all within anywhere from five yards to 50 yards of my tree stand. We were covered. And I think if I had a mouth grunted to stop that deer, we'd have been, the gig would have been up. So I decided to shoot him walking. He wasn't moving very fast. I uh, slow it down frame by frame, and I think my shot would have been right in the like right in the lungs. It would have been perfect. 
but he took a stride right when I let that arrow go. And I ended up hitting him in the femoral artery um, back a ways in front of the hind quarters. Uh, it took about five seconds before that deer was on the ground flopping. He took yeah, off running. I, that was like the fastest kill ever. <laughs> yeah, he, he ran about 20, 20 yards or so, and then he stood yeah. up on his hind legs like a, like a Mustang. And he fell backwards and landed on his back and his legs went for, you know, a couple seconds and then he was done. It was just the most insanely fast kill I've ever been a part of when it comes to archery hunting. Um, I got so lucky that I hit him where I did. Otherwise, I'm sure we'd had a 24 hour wait and a track job ahead of us with rain and a forecast, you know. Yeah. Was that an expandable broadhead? Yeah, yeah, that thing was two inches. I, I opened up pretty good, and I cut him up real bad. Sure. He, he wasn't getting away. <laughs> but Were I, you afraid I, at all? Or you... Oh, go ahead, go ahead. I'll just never forget that feeling, you know, of uh, putting the ending to a story. I mean, I made another bad shot on the same animal, but this one I got lucky and ended up killing him. And the amount of pride that kind of surged through me, that – if you watch the film, I'm shaking pretty, pretty intense, but it's, it's not just, it's not just adrenaline going through me, but I was literally, you know, when you're, you're in kill mode and you, you forget how cold you are, yep. but you, you just, you just let that arrow sail. And now you're like, all right, dude, it's a combination of energy, like tons of energy mixed and adrenaline mixed with like, holy cow, I was actually really cold. I was just pretending I wasn't because I was so focused. You know, it yeah. all came out of me at once, and I could barely put my words together. My teeth were chattering and all that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, it was pretty pretty awesome video. I was going to ask you if, uh, if you were afraid about that coyote laying dead there, if I was going to end up screwing it up for you at all in hindsight. Yeah, in hindsight, um, that is something we talked about. It's like, boy, you know, what if the deer coming down one of that thing? He's probably going to be stinking pretty bad. Um, but it was a little too late, you know. It was one of those things where, I don't know. You, you know, you see it on, on the shows, the hunting shows, and, and everybody that bow hunts long enough has an encounter or two with a coyote. And some people more than others. But as long as I've been hunting, I've seen a lot of coyotes but I don't always have them close enough to shoot. And um, I just really wanted to shoot a coyote. I had my license and everything for it. And I thought, what the heck? Plus, um, you know, I kind of left this part out, but you know, the other thing about that was in, in, there's a spring Turkey episode from that same season where I was out with Dave Bechtel and this coyote came in and tried to eat his, uh, his decoy and uh and he he shot at that thing with his bow um you know like we had a den out there that just came out of nowhere and it felt like every time all of a sudden we'd start getting pictures of coyotes or seeing coyotes from the field you know we weren't seeing deer anymore and so it's just one of those things get get them out of there eradicate them yep, so yep. but yeah yeah i mean that was risky that was risky i don't know I'll be honest with you, if you that 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 coyote was laying dead not more than ten yards away from where a lot of deer were standing and they were feeding like no care in the world. I mean there is one deer that was feeding within a few feet of the squirrel that fell out of his mouth when I shot him, you know. <laughs> so do does it make a difference? I don't really know. I mean I mean, it could have been a younger deer who's just putting up with it, you know. Uh 
not not the one I shot. The one I shot was massive. The <laughs> uh, but the, the deer that were close to it, you know, they 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 might have just been younger and, and just dealing with it or not cared. I, you know how it is when these younger deer they they kind of put up with more than some of the older deer do. That deer also uh, he he weighed um, more than any whitetail I've ever killed in my life uh, on the hoof. We're talking early season. I mean, it was it was opening day in Wisconsin, so mid September. He's got a light coat on him. Uh, he had a, a 28 inch girth on his neck. That's a massive neck. Um, and his uh, his body weight, what was it? It was something stupid, like field dressed with his hind legs cut off. He weighed 200 and something pounds. Wow. Um, I can't remember what exactly it was. It's on that episode. Uh, but it was a lot. I don't want to say it without remembering exactly what it was. But, you know, it's so funny because people, people, when they hear it, they're like, no. But, you know, guys like me, we film everything. So we definitely had to film it. We, we put him on the scale when we were butchering him and cut his uh, legs off at the knees. And, and, you know, he's obviously field dressed. And, and his head's even leaning on the, on the ground because we couldn't get the scale high enough. <laughs> and he still weighed well over. I think it I want to say he was like 260 pounds or something unbelievable. You got to watch it. It's, he's not a normal animal. It's not normal. (laughs) I think he was, I think he was seven or eight years old too. He's just a beast. But you know what? That's one of those things we always talk about when you watch him, when you if you guys watch that back and you see him walking across the field, he looks like a pig on stilts, like, all you see is this big body and then these tiny little twigs for legs, you know, like little skinny legs with this huge body and just dwarfs everything else around him. He was just a unique animal. Very unique. Man, yeah. That's... Yeah, I, I love the drop time too. It's just, there's oh, something yeah. about a drop time that was just awesome. <laughs> yeah, he had another one starting on the other side too. So, I mean, I'm sure if I let him go. And uh, he'd have had another year if he if he survived the cars and all that and and the other hunters, he probably would have had a, about a, a probably a matching you know he would have double drop his. You can put a ring on the other one, but it's it's not a full inch. You know it's it's about three quarters of an inch, but it's exactly the same distance from the base as where the other drop time is. It's just a perfect match for a double drop. He just just didn't didn't. Didn't add inches to it. Hmm. Sure, sure. Yeah, and he was a mainframe eight pointer the year before when I hit him. So he 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 gave up one of his tines. He gave up his really is like where his G two was. <laughs> like on that left side, he's got like a G. Uh, it is technically a G two, but it's growing where the G three was when he was an eight pointer. It's almost like the G two just never came up where it did the year before and then he put those inches into drops you know i don't know cool animal yeah man that's a super super impressive animal and that's a really great story too and there's a lot of different ways we could kind of branch off of it but one of the things that piqued my interest there was your um your, your summertime glassing that you kind of touched on there a little bit um so i'm wondering if we could kind of dive into that a little bit deeper because uh, it seems uh-huh. to uh, play a prominent role in some of your early season success. So, like, can we dive in a little bit? Like, how often are you glassing? What's the distance that you like to yeah. glass at? Some of the equipment? 
Yeah, I um, I I'm, I'm usually about anywhere from so probably 70, 80 yards to uh, 100 yards from where I'm hoping to see the deer. Obviously, you know they come out further away sometimes, and and that's natural when you're you know sitting over a big hay field or bean field. Right. Um, I typically prefer like if I had a choice, and you don't always have a choice, right? But if you have a choice, like you got one farm you can hunt that's got a bean that's got beans on it and another one that's got hay on it well of course you're going to go with whichever one you're seeing them from the road or from you know when you're standing there looking out whichever one you're seeing more deer on but if i had a choice around here i would say that the deer typically will choose hay over beans in my neck of the woods i I just the amount of deer i see coming into alfalfa in the summer is just crazy Hmm. um and and I see that a lot too up in the northwestern part part of the state too, like up in you know Iron River Superior area where there's a lot of agriculture. They don't really grow a ton of corn because the growing season isn't as long, so they'll they'll typically rotate or they'll do beans or, or hay. And uh, those hay fields, man, those are just lit. Um, I particularly like any kind of hay field that butts up to uh, oak. If you've got white oaks growing uh, alongside a, a hay field, you've got a recipe for success in the early season, especially for, you know, deer visibility in the summer. Um, one thing that I've really learned is, you know, sitting there on the, on the field edges, which I would say I probably do once every week, uh, at least once a week, sometimes twice a week if I'm really onto something or, you know, I get obsessed with filming a certain scene um, and I need more takes. Like I, I got really obsessed with trying to get a dragonfly, or not dragonfly, lightning bug, uh, a couple of years ago, and I went three days in a row, just just until I could finally get the right shot with these lightning bugs, um, which you'll be seeing on my recent episode that, or my episode that's coming up, not this Friday, but the Friday after this. So in, in not this week, but next week, my episode for my bow kill this last year will be on. We'll be live on our on our uh, channel, and you'll see uh, a scene there with lightning bugs and, and these bucks that are about eight yards away from me uh, in the waning light, and, and I and I needed a shot like that, so I just went repeatedly. But I, I'm just getting off on a tangent there. <laughs> but uh, I do a lot of driving around too. I, I'd say probably two or uh, three times a week, aside from sitting field edges, I'll just drive uh, right around sunset and. Uh, and, and I'll just look out in fields and sometimes I'll pull over and, and, and glass something up if it really strikes my eye. Uh, but usually I'll just, I'll just get an idea of who's where, like that big drop time buck, his range was so massive on uh, that four day you know, pattern. Really what he was doing is he was, he was moving from one field to the next, not all on the same night. He'd pick a field and then He'd work his way into a neighborhood and eat flowers, and then he'd bed down at night, kind of chew on his cud in flower gardens, you know, uh, in people's yards. Uh, you'd find them in neighborhoods, and then he'd be quarter mile away in a big old, you know, 150-acre um, bean field the next day, you know, and then the day after that, you, you, you'd lose him, and then all of a sudden, he's back to the hay field where I was hunting. Hmm. That was his pattern. So you got to drive around a lot and get an idea of how these deer are moving. Um, one thing I, you know, I was just doing a seminar on early season tactics uh, at the Mobile Hunters Expo in Kalamazoo uh, last month, and I, I really touched on this. This is important. Um, 
you know, first is, you know, understanding the difference between a white oak and a red oak, you know, and, and deer don't really care for those red oaks so much, but they love those white oaks and being able to tell the difference with those leaves, you know, if they're pointy, they're, they're red. And if they're, if they're rounded, they're, they're white. It's really easy to tell when somebody shows you, but, um, those white oaks, man, if you ever notice your trail cameras going dead in the summertime, uh, right around the time when um, the beans start to yellow up and get real bitter, those deer start transitioning out of the bean fields, even out of the hay fields, and they start moving into uh, the acorn crop and the hardwoods, and they'll start mowing those up. And then, you know, it's like they go from that to then uh, to the corn once it starts to harden. And, and that's kind of like a pattern I've witnessed. And I think one of the most important things that I've really learned about early season whitetails is, you know, we see these deer out in the fields uh, in daylight and you see them on like my films, especially I, I always have clips of, of deer in velvet. Cause I just, I do so much scouting. Um, and I think that those shots are just so beautiful. So I like using them. But you see it, you think, well, you always got to be hunting the field edge. These deer are always out in the field. But you know what, man? It's like right now, like right now, all of my fields are going dry. Those deer are in the hardwoods right now. And the only deer that I'm seeing come out into the field are little spotted fawns going prancing around. Mom sticks her head out to check on them. She might walk out into the field and spend, you know, a few minutes feeding just to like, you know, let her, let her fawns know she's around, but then she'll chase them back into the hardwoods. And then all of a sudden, like the waning light comes and you got a couple little bucks that come out, two-year-olds, maybe a three-year-old, but the big four or five or older, more mature bucks, they're not showing up as often. They're not as frequent out in the open in these fields. And if you shine a light out in that field, you know, shoot, 30 minutes after, uh, you know, it's dark, there they are and where are they what are they doing it's like well think about it man these big deer get big for a reason they've been through the ringer when they were younger deer they were out feeding in those fields in daylight totally shootable but they learned to stay in the the canopy where they have some cover and they wait till the darkness comes before they step out into the open you know and that's just especially when they start to smell that you're in there hunting or you're in there doing something monkeying around changing batteries on your tree you know trail cameras or whatever everything changes but uh you know i was saying like these guys were asking me like what do you like hunting do you like hunting field edges or do you like hunting in the woods or marsh or what and i said every every situation is different but if i'm if i'm watching a certain group of bucks and there's one in there i want to kill and it comes down to him being like a a homebody to a certain farm that may be frequenting like open fields. I'm going to be, you know, inside of those woods, maybe 50 yards, a hundred yards. Hope I catch him in there staging up, waiting for darkness to set in before he steps out into the field. Um, and another question came in and said something like, I think he was asking me, what do you think the drawbacks are? Do you feel like you're missing out on what's out in that field? I said, well, yeah, for sure. You know, it, it, it's hard. It's hard because you know that there's deer out in the field and you don't get to see a lot when you're sitting in the woods, but you're in there for a reason. You know, you're, 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 the, you're hunting for a specific type of animal. You're not just out there hunting for pictures. You're not out there hunting for visuals on a bunch of younger deer. If you're hunting a mature animal, you're hunting where he's going to be. 
So you got to put your time in and, and you've got to, you got to dedicate yourself and get over the fact that you're missing out on seeing, you know, five or 10 or 20 deer feeding out in the field. It's not about going home and saying, well, yeah, I got to see a bunch. It's about going home and saying, I got the one. And, uh, it's, it sure does get dark early in the canopy of the hardwoods early season. I mean, there's times where, you know, you think it's time to crawl down and you get out of the woods and you walk out in the field and you're like, shoot, man, I can see perfectly. I could still shoot in the field. And, right. and then you, and then you blow the whole field out and it's like, I, sh- I guess I should have waited, you know, it's just challenges to it, but that's kind of how I, I operate early season. Yeah. That is mm-hmm. a big lesson to learn too, for people like, you know, where you might see the largest volume of deer or what, sorts of land features might attract a large volume of deer isn't necessarily where you're going to find the big deer that you're after the mature deer the bucks that have made it through seasons of being hunted they tend to Mm -hmm. act a little bit differently than the does and the fawns and the young bucks do so you really have to weed out the different areas and and learn how to hunt that a little bit better yeah and, and i mean and i'm i'm you know, I used to hunt a lot of public land, a lot of it, and I still do hunt public land. But, you know, I'd be lying if I said that that's all I hunt. I'm not, I'm not into the whole fad of if you're not killing something on public land, it doesn't have merit anymore. Like, I just don't buy into that crap. But the amount of work and energy I put into finding and securing permission or, you know, private ground to hunt, it's exceptional. You know, it, it is it is so much work. It is equally as hard for me to lock down even these small acre private pieces. I hunt like five acres here, two acres there, seven and a half over there, 15 here, and you know, 60 over there. And, and I've got a bunch of these pieces because I need to not burn them out. You burn out a piece so dang fast. So you need to be able to play different winds and bounce around. And Sometimes none of your private works out for, for the conditions or you've been in one piece too much. You got to let it sit. So I'll go find public, but I definitely, um, and I'm just touching on this. I know I'm kind of derailing, but I think it goes hand in hand because a lot of the tactics I'm explaining are, are things that, you know, I deploy on private ground, you know, these farms, there's not a whole lot of public farms out there, you know, and especially in Wisconsin, we don't have a ton of, you know, public fields to hunt, you know, with crops on them. So when somebody is a public land hunter, more power to you. Um, but I just don't buy into the whole jargon that, you know, Hey, yeah. Did you get it on public or private private? Ah, that that, that doesn't matter anymore. It's so funny to me. You know, you get a YouTube channel someday and you, you put up a video that says public land bow kill. And then you post one the next day that says, (laughs) or just says big buck bow kill and watch how much views, you get in addition to um you know just for saying public you know that that word it's almost like it's all in the musky world you hold a picture of a big you know 52 54 incher out on green bay or you know lake st Clair, where they've come to be more regular and people just are like oh yeah where do you get it oh the bay yeah okay it, it's all of a sudden we don't care that it's a it's a enormous you know world-class fish it's just it's so funny to me how things have it really morphed, but yeah, I just wanted to say that um, and kind of went off on a tangent there, like I usually do. But it really, a lot of the tactics I was talking about really are specific to to private. You know, public land is so much different. It's a different beast. 
Uh, I'm a big swamp hunter. I like hunting marshes more than anything and swamps uh, on public land. I like to do that because it's it's more work and, and it's adventurous and not a lot of guys are willing to do it. You know, um, usually for me, when it comes to public land hunting, especially in the early season, I'm doing a lot of door knocking on private ground surrounding the public, trying to get entry to cross properties to get it to the backside of the public where other people have to walk a long way to get to it. You know, here's a case of beer. If you let me park in front of your house and walk across your yard, you know, it, 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 that kind of thing goes a long way is to, to, to slip in the back door of public land where you don't have a lot of the competition. Um, and I like to use boats. You guys probably know by now I use boats for a lot of my access. Um, you know, uh, but yeah, early season, early season on public land is a different animal really is at least the way I hunt them. Um, and I don't know, this is one thing, one thing I want to mention here. This is something that uh, is just a little token of uh, gold in case you, in case you don't forget it. One thing that I've learned in at least Wisconsin and, and, and Minnesota is if you find one maple tree in mid October, you know, one maple tree that's growing in some hardwoods and you see those bright yellow leaves and you kind of have that mirror effect where almost the ground around the tree looks like, you know, like what the tree above it looks like. That right there is like nature's little bait pile. Those yellow leaves have so much sugar in them, the deer gobble them up. And I've really, I've really found that just from observations. If you find something like that, it's almost a, a, a you just have to sit on it and just see what happens. Is deer, deer, it's just crazy. It's like having a water hole in the summertime. You know, they just flock to it. That's crazy. I don't think I've ever heard that take from anybody before um that's super interesting though really really interesting <laughs> i want to jump back to the acorn thing um mm-hmm. or the or the white oaks because yeah. i was just thought really really late here usually this is done a long time ago but uh just with family and stuff and, and stuff going on this summer we were real late in my family's land up in the central part of the state getting our stands hung and stuff we were up about a week and a half ago getting that and it was like raining acorns already and i could not believe the amount of acorns i've seen on the ground and i actually have a white oak in my driveway and my driveway is just like littered with acorns right now i don't is that it seems really really early to me but do you think this is because of like the drought and the dryness we've had this year and could that be something that people should really be looking to key in on early season this year specifically it's a good question but i'll be honest with you my answer is going to be a little less exciting than, than the question. The question, it, it sounds really like well thought out. It really does. But it also kind of reminds me of like when somebody asks like, Hey, do you think we're going to have an early rut this year? Or do you think the right. rut's going to be late? And it, it really, the science behind the rut really bears down to photo periodism. I mean, that's just, that's just the honest to God truth. And so we have the same time period where the rut kicks in every year for wherever you're hunting and occasionally deer will come in to heat you know a little bit earlier and we'll see that and then everybody gets excited and thinks it's an early rut it's just the same as it was every year the same with acorn crop um the acorns are a little different in that like you have a cycle i don't know if it's every four years or what it is but there's there's a 
I think it's every four years or something that oftentimes you'll see like um, oak trees just aren't aren't growing many acorns. And, and it won't be like that for the whole state. It's just certain trees go on cycles where they'll spit out a bunch of fruit, you know, a bunch of acorns and nuts. And, and then um, all of a sudden there'll be a dry year where they're just not, not dry as in climate, but they just won't, they won't yeah. produce. And, and, and really, I've, I've not seen much difference. It's, it's typically mid August where I've seen, or I'm sorry, mid, mid July, late July, uh, where you'll start really seeing clusters of acorns up in the trees. And then by like mid August, that's when I start seeing them drop. Um, and, and some trees drop them earlier than others. And yeah, there's probably climate, um, influences to what makes them snap off, you know, and fall kind of like leaves like right now we got leaves falling like crazy uh you get a couple cold you know crisp nights like we had a week ago and then all of a sudden it gets hot and dry you know Mm -hmm. that that that's natural like climate stuff that will cause certain things to fall out of the trees for sure but i honestly think it's pretty routine mid mid august is about when i really start seeing them drop in that transition from the fields to the dense hardwoods where they're really you know, gorging themselves on it. Yeah. Yep. Makes sense. Makes sense. Uh, just keeping on this early season train. Um, I think one of the biggest challenges we always run into is stand access in the early season. You know, especially if you're sitting over or near an egg field, or maybe you got to walk through an egg field. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes it's not even just getting in, but it's even getting out. Um, are you doing anything special with access? Are you only hunting the evenings? And then, like, what are you doing in terms of getting out in the evening if you got to come back out through that egg field? Yeah, you know, the one field where I killed that drop tie and I've killed, I think, seven different deer on my wall from that particular farm. I, I, I There's houses there now they built this year, um, so I, I don't get to hunt there anymore. But I hunted it enough to uh, – to answer the question um and and honestly you know my my access in in and this is uh you know no secret to anybody we've all heard by now somebody telling us that you know try to try to not hunt the same tree more than once or twice don't get married to your tree stand use a different entry and exit every time to keep the deer guessing otherwise they they get wise to you you know, you don't see a deer in the tree and you think, boy, that sucked. And then you creep your way out of there and you say, yeah, I was able to get out without spooking anything. Little do you think about what happens after you've left and then the deer show up later and they walk over your footpath and they're, they're keen on where you were. And then next thing you know, you're you're hunting on the defense instead of the offense because these deer are starting to wise up and, and, and draw circles with their trails around you, you know. Um, yep. When it comes to leaving, really for me, I've always just walked straight out of the field. Like I, I've, I usually have my my little entry and exit that I planned out to get in and out of the woods. And then once I got to the field edge, the way I had to leave was to walk straight across. If I walked along the edge of the field where all the deer were browsing, I'd be worried I'd be leaving more of a, a scent trail. But it felt like if I walked my way right through the hay, you know that alfalfa crop. Um, the next day I'd still have deer walking over my foot trail it was really the day of like if I if I walk in to a stand and I'm hunting by like say I'm hunting the field edge I have watched on that particular property 
um, deer get right up to my foot trail, walking into my stand, stop on a dime, get all nervous and turn and burn. That was pretty common. You just kind of got to, you know, try. I'm a, I'm a hang and hunt mobile kind of guy. I don't like to sit in the same place very often. It just does more harm than good from, in my, my experience. So, you know, uh, you know, I might hunt this part of the field one day. And if I'm, if I, if I'm hunting the field edge and then I'll move over and hunt around the corner or around the finger or whatever the next day, you know, and then go in the woods. I'm just kind of all over. You think about it, like what's a big piece to you when it comes to private land, we we think of uh, at least us Wisconsin residents. You know we're used to 40s, and a lot of them are 20s because all the farmers are going out of business. Sadly, if you're not like one of the huge businesses, and they're divvying up their parcels, and they make more money selling 20s than they do bigger. Like, hey, buy my whole 110 acre farm or whatever. They'd rather break it up into smaller pieces and make more money. That's just the reality of it. So we don't have huge tracts of land. You score 120 acres to hunt. It might sound like a ton of land, but you can burn 120 acres out in a hurry, like in a hurry, um, depending on the shape of it and how you're accessing and exiting. And, and so like, you know, uh, it's so funny to me, guy around here gets permission on a, on a hundred or, you know, 200 acres and they think they got it made and they kind of do, but they'll just marry it and they'll hunt it all the time they won't leave they won't go try anywhere else they'll never try public they won't get permission anywhere else they'll just always hunt that same farm and they'll wonder why did it take me all season to kill one and it's like man you just trained every deer in there about your tactics is you're in and out constantly you know you know it's just you 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 gotta be is is wise as you can when you're thinking about exit and entry strategies but you can't be perfect because it's just damn near impossible we don't have a helicopter picking us up and dropping us off so you, you got to leave some sort of a trail just do it the best way you can you know i, I was hunting a, a one particular farm that was 125 acres in waukesha and it was laced with these drainage ditches that had water in them and you could walk with knee highs the water would be pretty close to the tops of the boots, but the ditch was low enough where nothing would see you because you would have to drop down into the ditch and nothing would smell you because you were walking in, in the water. I mean, it might smell you in the wind, but you're not leaving a trail. And, uh, and I did that a lot, you know, and that's also why I love using water for, for access. It's just, if you have it as an option, you know, yeah, absolutely. Um, I could go on and on about this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> no, we could too, for sure. Um, I know that when it comes to early season, a lot of guys only like to hunt. In the evenings, they kind of rule out morning hunts. So I'm curious if there's any scenarios that you consider hunting in the morning or do you not rule it out? Where do you stand on morning hunts in the early season? I used to be an evening hunter uh, for early season, but the last several years here, I've been hunting mornings pretty frequently. Um, and the amount of uh, encounters that we've been having early um, are are profound. Um, I scratch my head and wonder why the heck I was selling myself short, not hunting mornings early season. It just, it really comes down to having the right property. Not every property is set up for a morning hunt for early season. But it is true that a lot of times, the deer will disappear uh, early season in the mornings. Like you just don't get a lot of visuals. 
but a lot of times that's because we're not hunting the right piece where they're still making their way back to bed. We have this like assumption that somebody once said that was a prominent figurehead and everybody believed it and then ran with it, that, you know, early season deer in their beds before the sun comes up. And that's just not true. It's just not the amount of signs, uh, like uh, sightings that I have hunting in the hardwoods, especially in the oaks, um, kind of close to bedding, uh, is it's a lot. I mean, you'll see some footage in this coming up episode here of, of just that. I mean, it's morning time, it's opening day and the day after Saturday and Sunday of opening weekend here in Wisconsin, I'm in Southeast Wisconsin and I'm having deer walk by me at eight thirty, nine o'clock, um, in bucks and they're feeding on leaves. You know, they're, they're feeding on leaves around me. Um, and we're getting incredible footage of these animals and a couple of them borderline shooters, you know, and upwards of five yards away from the tree stand. And I just, and my cameras even right now, um, in some of those areas are showing me that deer are still moving around at, you know, late morning, you know, mid to late morning. So I know I'm close to bedding, but I know that these deer aren't just like, holy cow, here comes the sun, guys. Let's get on the road. We got to run back to bed and, and, and curl up. No, it's not real. I mean, they got to get there somehow, but they're just going to take a denser path. You know, they don't want to be seen. So they use the dense cover to get there. And a lot of times if they can eat a little bit on the way back to bed, they can just sit there and chew on their cud for the day. And oaks seem to be the best place for that. Yeah, I like hunting, me, I like hunting mornings in the oak trees. Let me phrase it this way: Would you hunt mornings if your only access was through a crop or egg field? Absolutely not. Yeah. No. So no. That, that I would, would not. be the. That's I agree like with what you said. Like it's property specific, and if you have to go through egg, I would also say like 100% probably not. No, the amount of deer you're going to blow out of those fields is just not worth it. I mean, now you're scattering them, and, and if a deer walks by, a, you know, after you finally get in and get set up, that's cool. But it's kind of like scattering a flock of turkeys, right? And then they're all yeah. kind of confused, and they're looking around to find each other again. It's not There's not going to be rhyme or reason after that. Once you blow them out of the field, you're, you're hoping to luck into one walking by. That's, it's a diff, that's a different type of ball game. Sure, sure. So some other things with early season that uh, we certainly run into. Um, hopefully we don't get weather like we've had the last five days, but, you know, sometimes heat, humidity, mosquitoes, uh, just late evenings in general. By the time you get out of the woods, you know, it's sometimes it's 830, 9 o'clock or whatever. Later than that, by the time you get back to your truck and, and back home, a lot of excuses if you ask me. But uh, what do you have to say about all those things that people use as excuses not to hunt the early season nah it's too warm it's too hot too too it's muggy out too many mosquitoes what do you have to say about all that i say thank goodness it's less competition <laughs> out in the deer woods right i mean come on right uh the the it's not the more the merrier it's the fewer the better for me um when it comes to to pressure and all that but you know i don't know it, it's it's not for everybody right i mean not everybody huh likes to hunt the heat i i've never been one to say well it's too warm i'm gonna be uncomfortable i would say that nine out of ten times that i go out in the woods i'm usually uncomfortable 
I mean, I sweat walking in because I'm carrying camera gear and my stand and my bow. And, you know, it's usually a, a, a tough trek in or wading in water or have to like paddle in or something like that. It's a lot of work. Um, but, you know, I live for that kind of thing. Um, it's not casual for me. And I think that's, you know, the name of the game. Is it casual for you or not? Like fishermen, are you a bobber fisherman that likes to go float around and just hope on a prayer your bobber goes under? Or, you know, are you fishing two feet under the bobber and, and 30 feet of water or are you using slip bobbers, you know, and adjusting for the depth? Like what kind of, what kind of hunter are you and what kind of, uh, like what, what's your purpose, you know? And, um, yeah, it's, it's really, it's the difference between, you know, it's where the men and the boys, you know, separate, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> yep. For sure. Yeah, that's a that's yeah, a really good way of putting it, I think. And I've got another question that is a little bit off topic here, but it kind of ties back into something we talked about earlier. Um, you know, most people are really obsessed with all types of different gear these days. And I know you mentioned earlier how you don't really buy into that a ton, but are there any like must have items that you're taking with you to the stand? Yeah, I take a um, I take a grunt tube with me uh, starting from day one of the season. It doesn't mean I'm sitting there blowing on a, on a tube all day long or something, trying to like grunt grunt one in all the time. But I have actually turned uh, turned deer towards me that way. Um, I'm a little bit old fashioned. Uh, one of my best rut tactics, uh, and I know we're talking early season, but just goes hand in hand with like trinkets and stuff and gadgets or whatever. Yep. is sticks branches i've been able to bring more deer in close for a shot by breaking a branch in the tree that i'm in um than any grunt tube or rattling antlers really it's just you got a deer 200 yards out in the field and you got a dead branch by you if you pull on that thing and snap it deer will put their head up and come in on a string thinking that like they you know there's there's another deer around doe buck who knows what they think but they come tearing in to come investigate that has been uh, a huge tactic for me and it's free. Um, but you know, early season, I always do have a thermocell with me. Um, I always have my grunt tube just in case I want to try something as a last ditch effort. Uh, I got to have my water with me for sure. Um, let's see what else is something that I, that I always have with me. I always have a knife. I hate being the guy that like shoots deer and then asks the cameraman, do you have a knife? It's, it's just, you know, goofy. And then I always have my wicked tree saw, um, because I never know what I'm going to get into. So that's always in my pack. Um, you know, if I got to cut a limb or something, um, I always have extra lithium batteries, double A's because they work for my trail cameras and they work for my, uh, Sennheiser, uh, lavalier mics. Um, I always have my camera gear. Uh, I always have with me, um, you know, those USB, uh, battery chargers in case my battery goes dead or my phone goes dead and I need it for any kind of reason, whether it's for, uh, you know, um, filming or if it's for emergency use, like what happened to me last year. And I, uh, you know, if my phone had been dead after being out there all day and I was in that kind of dire situation, I could have died. So having like a battery, you know, charged up battery pack to hook up your, uh, your phone or your camera to, to save the day, that, that'd be pretty essential. Um, but yeah, those are some of the must-haves. Yeah. 
I'm not, and I don't bring food with me into the stand very often, not because I think the deer are going to smell it or the wrinkling of the wrappers, although that does kind of bug me. Um, I just, I just, I, I don't have much of an appetite when I'm in the stand, but I'll tell you what, man, as soon as I get back to the truck, I'm like down for some quick trip food and, and, and that's saying a lot because that usually gives me a stomach ache later on, but I'm so hungry. I just about eat anything, you know? <laughs> Yeah. Oh, binoculars, binoculars and a rangefinder. I cannot tell you how important that is for me. The rangefinder is, is, is pretty important. After a while, you know, us experienced guys, we, we start to get a beat on distance, but we're not always perfect. I'm not one to sit there and range deer right before I shoot them because that's just not reasonable. Um, I'm the guy that ranges trees or landmarks and then remembers them and then set my yardage based on where the deer is to the landmark so i'm minimal movement in the tree stand but dude binoculars by far and that's another that's one of those things that jared scheffler taught me early on i never really used binos and he's like how do you not have binoculars here use this pair and I, I and i never took them off because we use them so much and once i became familiar with them and found out just how vital a good pair of glasses they are essential. They just are. You've you got to have binoculars. And if you're hunting in, in the forest, it doesn't mean, well, I'm hunting in some dense, you know, canopy. I don't need binos. Man, yes, you do. Get yourself some 10 by 42s and just listen. You, you're going to be, you're going to thank me when you, when you find out how essential they really are. Is that, it's just so frequent that like, you know, you see something moving, but you can't really tell what it is. And, it, you know, you got to make a decision. Do I focus on that or do I divert my attention elsewhere? And so you just throw the binos up and you can tell, is that a deer or not? You know, are those antlers moving or is that a, a, a plant? You know, it's just binoculars, man. It's so important. Yeah, 100% agree. Just the little things you can pick up on and it just keeps your attention too. Like you got the binos up all the time searching around versus, you know, you're better off doing that than sitting on your phone um, very deep in that. So. Well, I wish we could just leave phones at home. Uh, phones saved my oh, life no. last year, so I need we, we need them, you know, and things can go haywire. If you don't have a phone, uh, it can get a bit hairy out there. Cert certain things can happen. Um, but I'm as guilty as the next guy for sometimes just getting bored after a while and staring at my phone and then missing something, you know. That's the worst. Yep. The, I don't know yeah. if there's much worse feeling than looking up and seeing a big buck closed into 20 yards and, he's staring at you when you put your phone down and you just, you had no idea he was there. <laughs> That's the absolute worst by far, by far. So I want to, I want to run you through a series of rapid fire choices uh, when it comes to hunting. I always kind of enjoy these things. So I'm going to give you either like two or three choices or I'll ask you just for like a one word answer. Um, just give your answer, no explanations. And we're going to, uh, this is going to span like the whole hunting season, not just, early season so i'm gonna run you through a little gauntlet of stuff here so um, if you only had one month to kill a target buck in wisconsin which one are you choosing september october november december opening the weekend specific, september specific specific buck yeah right away in september that's when i'm killing them nice. it's either gonna be it's either gonna be the first week of the season or it's gonna be the last week opening weekend set uh on a bean field or falling acorns i think i know your answer acorns grunt tube or doe bleat grunt tube 
Grunt tube or rattling the antlers? Grunt tube. What's the maximum distance you'd take a shot at a deer with your bull? Uh, whitetail? Yep. Isn't that funny? Because it's it's one of those things, your mule deer hunter, <laughs> it's okay to shoot 60, 70 yards, but you can't do that if it's a whitetail. But whitetail are more edgy. I, I, I would say the, the max I'm going to poke out, and, it, and it's a reach, would be 50 yards, and that's that's really got to be perfect. Uh, fixed blade or mechanical? You know, I was a fixed blade guy for a long time, but I've been shooting mechanicals the last decade. But I just got these Havoc uh, fixed uh, single double bevels, and they are the most unique uh, fixed that I've ever shot in my life. And um, I'm I'm really enjoying them at this point. So hopefully I'll keep shooting them. But, but yeah, I guess in a nutshell, the last decade I've been mechanical. Uh, if you were super hungry, because I know you just went over this, uh, favorite tree stand snack, if you had to bring something. Yeah, favorite would be uh, almond Snickers. Almond Snickers, nice. How about favorite venison recipe, favorite way to make venison? I would definitely do um, backstrap uh, with uh, melted blue cheese um, in a cast iron skillet over hardwood lump coal with some butter mixed in, pour it over the top, and and you got yourself a fine meal. So it's you hungry? Man, I'm hungry now. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> uh, if you could only hunt the bow season or gun season, which one would it be? Oh, <laughs> I'd be, it would be bow all day long. Uh, what's one overrated piece of hunting gear? Anything that's scent gimmicky. Nothing's washing your scent away. Absolutely nothing. We're on the same page on that. How about one underrated piece of hunting gear? Piece of hunting gear? I would uh, I would say definitely the, well, binoculars or, or your sight eye. When it comes to uh, your bow, if, it, if you're bow hunting, I'd say your sight. You know, I'm, I'm really fixed on what sight I'm running on my bow. That, that makes all the difference in the world. I, I run, I used to, I used to shoot a different single, pin site but i am stuck on dialed archery stuff right now um a lot of times when you get into the colder weather you know you got gloves on and you got to spin that dial to get to the right range with your single pin um the size of the dial on the dialed archery sites uh especially the arxos that, I, that i'm using is just money um so yeah i'd say your sight and binoculars those are two pinnacle things and definitely a grunt tube like i i swear by a grunt tube i really have done good things with a grunt tube so i love my grunt nice if you had to pick one day what's your favorite day of the year to hunt favorite absolute favorite day of any season my entire life has always been halloween halloween nice do you how many do you have kills on halloween yeah i think i've got four kills on halloween um it's just the day i don't know what it is but late, you know, super late October when those deer are freshening up their scrapes on, on a routine pattern like that, and, and they're really on the hoof all day long, and they're searching out hot does, and it's it's just the most activity. And I don't know why, but I've I've had more encounters with big deer on Halloween than any other uh, any other day in in history that I can remember. I mean, that's one day. You think about that. I've got four confirmed kills on Halloween. 
I don't have any other day that I can think of where I've got maybe maybe November 7th. I think I've got two kills on November 7th, you know, and November 4th, I got one and you can go all around there. But that one particular day, just multiple kills. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's awesome. I, I, something about Halloween. I, I, I love being in the stand on that day as well. All right, here's a tough one. I think it's a tough one. How about catch a 50-inch muskie or shoot a 160-inch whitetail? I'll, I'll kill a 160-inch whitetail all day over a 50-inch muskie. Uh-huh. What's the what's the muskie barometer there? 53, 54? Where does it have to get to equal you know, out? Uh, honestly, um, maybe it doesn't. <laughs> uh, honestly, no, no. I guess n- double nickels. Uh, uh, catching a 55-inch, you know, 45, 50-pound muskie would uh, would would sit pretty good with just like catching. Uh, or shooting a 160-inch, 160-inch whitetail, you know. It, <laughs> but it takes a lot, man. I'm, I'm as much of a musky nut as I am. I am awfully obsessed with whitetails. Love it, love it. All right, last one for you. Your favorite buck on the ground or buck in the back of the truck celebration beverage? <laughs> <laughs> you know, everybody probably expects me to say Bushlight because that's what everybody says, but. I sure like a, a schluck of blackberry brandy, especially when it's cold out. It just coats the throat, and uh, and uh, it's kind of a tradition that's unique to my experience, you know, outside of anybody else's. <laughs> love it, love it. So, all right, cheers, buddy. You uh, you made it through the, the list of rapid-fire questions, and uh, I love a lot of those answers. So, nice job. <laughs> cool, man. Appreciate it, guys. <laughs> yeah, so what are some of the – early season prospects for you this fall. I know you talked about the video that's going to come out about a week after this episode will, um, but what's on mm-hmm. the docket for you guys early season for chase nation. Yeah, we've got a lot of travel ahead of us this year between Wisconsin, uh, Nebraska, Iowa, Kansas, uh, Missouri, Illinois, uh, Minnesota. And um, am I missing any here? I think I oh in Colorado we got I got a, a couple of the guys leaving here in a couple of days for for Colorado so they're going out elk hunting but yeah we we've got we've got trips all over the place lined up this year with my team um, you know and in Wisconsin uh, majority of my team is in the Tri County area Waukesha County Washington County and Jefferson County we've got a couple of guys that that spent a lot of time in Ozaki County and, uh, you know, um, Sheboygan County, but, but, but yeah, we we're a lot of us are spending our time in Southeast Wisconsin here. Uh, you know, as far as our, the meat of our season goes, um, you know, we've got a couple little trips planned, uh, amongst us all, um, to the center part of the state and to the North woods, you know, one thing that I've always wanted to film is a is a genuine Northwoods uh, hunt or a track hunt, uh, but it's something that you really gotta have the time for, and know that there's a good chance you're gonna go up there and and come home empty-handed. You know, it's not the best to go into a hunt with that kind of mindset, but it's a reality. Uh, yep. In Nicolay Nicolay National Forest, you know, Vilas Forest, uh, Oneida County area. Um, but track hunts are harder than hell and uh and uh people up in that neck of the woods you know 
well, not people up there, but when, when folks around here down in the southern part of the state go up north, they see a lot of deer along the road, especially in the summertime, and they think, man, there's so many deer up north, you know, but what what people fail to realize is that you, you've got your, your <laughs> along the roads is really the only place the sun is able to hit the ground because the forest is so dense up there. And so all the undergrowth that's food or forage really gro- grows along the roads couple that up with all the people that live on those highways like highway 70 or 45 up there you know seven out of ten houses has a bird feeder in the back or a squirrel feeder you know air quotes so the deer really travel along the highways up there because they have forage right up to the road and they have yards to go feed in some of the best hunting you can find is close to the road up north um but I mean, getting on a track and, and, and catching that on film, like they do up in the big woods of Maine or something would be awfully cool to do in the Northwoods. So I'd like to do it. I just don't know if I'm going to make it to do it this year. Yeah, that sounds, that sounds pretty sweet. That would be a, a pretty cool undertaking. So sounds like you guys have a pretty full, full schedule. A lot of tags, uh, should be a, a great season for you guys. So if people want to watch some of your videos, uh, follow along with your season, I know you guys got some sweet gear and swag out there for Chase Nation. Where can they find all your stuff? You bet. Um, ChaseNation.tv is our website. Um, there we list out, you know, our different show series, Taste of the Wild, which is our wild game cooking. Uh, you know, what some of our favorite uh, wild game recipes are and campfire stories and then unscripted adventures. We also list out our partners there with direct links to their websites and then of course we have our online store we have a ton of different hat options and shirts and hoodies available and koozies you name it um and then uh you know as far as watching us you can watch us on carbon tv uh we have let's see taste of the wild uh show series we have campfire stories show series we have unscripted adventure show series and we have visual storytellers so we have four show titles on carbon tv which essentially is four different shows that you can watch that that we we create content for um and then you can watch us on keys outdoors television uh, on roku so if anybody's using roku on their smart tvs you can uh, look up kotv and you'll find a bunch of uh, great outdoor shows including chase nation and then, you know, the easiest place to find us, you know, and it's free everywhere, but the easiest place is on YouTube. And you can look up Chase Nation TV, and we are releasing a new episode every week on Fridays at 5 p.m. U.S. Central Standard Time. And we just launched our first episode of Season 7 this past Friday, and Episode 2 is coming up here in a couple of days. Yeah, sweet, man. I know we're going to be following along for sure. So we're really looking forward to it. Awesome guys. Yeah. I really appreciate you having me on your show and let me, uh, you know, share some of my takes on things. I really appreciate that. Oh, absolutely. When we really appreciate you joining us tonight, I feel like we could just talk forever and ever about deer hunting cause we're all so passionate about it, but we really appreciate your time and, and joining us tonight. So thank you. You bet guys have a great night and, uh, and stay in touch with me, please. Sounds good. Thanks, Sam, for coming on. I really, really enjoyed this chat. So good luck this season. Thanks. You too. We'll see ya. See you later. And thank you to everybody for joining us here and following along. We really appreciate it. Um, 
As always, if you could subscribe to our YouTube channel, that would be amazing. We really appreciate it. That's where you're going to find all of our podcasts and all of our other videos as well. We have a lot of great stuff out there, and there's only going to be more and more to come. So subscribe to our YouTube channel. We really appreciate it, and we will see you guys next time.